I'm here today with Andrew Schwartz. He is the director of diversity at the Lexington School. And uh, ironically, I don't know how old Andrew is. I don't know if he's willing to share, but uh, he's a lot younger than me. And he's been like a mentor for me as the director of equity and inclusion here at Lexington Catholic. I think it's just mystifying how things work out sometimes. Today, we are talking a little bit about adoption and about the possibility of starting an adoption affinity group here at Lexington Catholic. And I think we wanted to start out a little bit about uh, regarding sensitivity because uh, I've had some meetings with folks at school and have become aware that I'm just really unaware of how insensitive I can be to a population that I know very little about. Do you want to say any other words of introduction? Uh, uh, yeah, sure. Um, first of all, thank you for the kind words. I'm just super happy that we've been able to have this relationship and bounce ideas off of each other. Uh, I'm 33, just for <laughs> listeners. Um, yeah, it's it's adoption is a um, unique experience, I believe, especially uh, transracially adopted people, people who are adopted of one ethnicity or race by a family of a different ethnicity or race. Um, Because there's a lot of identity things that go on, and we can get into that in a little bit. But in terms of sensitivities, yeah, it's a lot of time I think that borderline comes from genuine interest, um, but not much experience in asking those questions. For example, When I was younger, families would ask, you know, where did my parents get me? And that just sounds awkward because it's like, oh, where did you get that Coke from? Where did you get those groceries from? Where did you get that coat from? And it's it 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 diminishes it to like a purchase, which is a weird idea to have, because in truth, for for adopted people, it's this thing that we struggle with anyway. Because as you become older and more self-aware, at least for myself, there was a point in time where I had a discussion with my family, like, so you guys, you paid some amount of money for me. That's a, that's a really weird thing for a person to have to struggle with identity-wise. Like, there is a value attached to me. Um... But my family was really terrific. Um, They were very loving. We had conversations about that. Um, I would say we, I'm 33, so I was in that kind of surge of adoptees coming from Asia to the United States, from China and South Korea and Japan. Um, And so a number of my family friends or a number of my parents' friends also adopted children from Korea at the same time. Um, So it was a conversation that existed in our household, but not a really deep conversation. Like, I was not aware until I was about 30 years old that there were things, that there were camps for adoptees, summer camps for adoptees, where it was like heritage camp where you could go and you could learn about your heritage and it mm. was just a camp populated by other people that were adoptees and it was mentored and facilitated by adult adoptees and all of this really neat stuff. Um, 
And I, and I remember bringing this back to my mom when I was just a couple of years ago after having visited POCC. And she just like burst into tears oh. um, because I didn't mean to make her feel bad. Uh, but she felt that kind of pain of <clears throat> we tried to do the best that we could. We thought of you and have always thought of you as our own son. You're a part of our family and you're just my son. And they didn't know, especially in the 80s and early 90s, that they could have developed better language to have discussions early on about, like, this is how everything happened, and just because we adopted you doesn't mean you're any different or any less from our family. Um, So it wasn't like a topic that was avoided, but it wasn't a topic that was directly engaged. And uh, I'm sorry, Mom, if you're listening, I hope you're not tearing up again. Um, But yeah, the sensitivities is it just kind of for adoptees and for parents of adoptees, it's things that they have either experienced or thought of or had to answer many times. And people who are asking questions, they only think of it that one time that they're interacting with an adopted person. Um, For example, another one would be, you know, um, well, who is your real parents, right? Like, mm. that's not, it's not like a great question because anybody that raises a child is a parent, right? It doesn't matter biologically. Um, so oftentimes the term is birth parents um, because I would consider my mom and my dad to be my real parents. Right. Um, and for adoptees, they can go through this um, feeling of whether or not I want to find or search for my birth parents at different stages in their lives. So I've been to POCC a couple of times. I facilitate the transracially adopted affinity group discussion. Um, And it's interesting to hear the different stories of these adults. Some of them haven't been looking for their birth parents, some of them have and had had great experiences. Some of them have not and or have and have had terrible experiences. Mm. Um, some of them don't want to. And we've actually talked about like the guilt of not wanting to search for your birth parents, because oftentimes people will say, well, have you searched for your birth parents, Andrew? And I'll say no. And then they'll say, oh, Wow. I mean, if I didn't know who my birth parent, I think I would really want to know. And it's like, I understand the sentiment, but I, I really didn't need that feedback. You know who your birth parents are. Your position isn't the same as mine. Right. I really appreciate you sharing a lot of these personal stories and feelings. I mean, never meeting your mom, I can just feel how much she loves you <laughs> and just how you talk about her. Um, and I think for people who are not in families that have experienced adoption are just so unaware of, um, of some of those sensitivities. And, um, the last thing that educators want to do is to step on a landmine or hurt the person you're trying to help, um, so I didn't know if you had any additional words. You had some good words there. Uh, 
Yeah, I think that, and and one of the things we've talked about this before, kind of is intention versus impact. Um, a lot of the times, the sensitivities or crossing of boundaries happens when people are genuinely curious, um, but it falls on the other person in a negative way. Hmm. Um, and I think that, especially with all of these kind of diversity discussions, certainly for adoptees, um, just recognizing that that can happen and being okay and accepting that is a good thing. So if David were to say something, uh, offensive or sensitive to me, um, I can find a way to say, to say like, yeah, that wasn't really the best way to phrase that. I know that you're curious about where I came from and where I was, you know, born and then um, traveled to come to America from. But saying, where did my parents get me? You could probably phrase that better. And then David being accepting of that and just say, wow, yeah. Not getting defensive and say, oh, no, I didn't mean it that way. But just accepting like, oh, that's my fault. My bad. I meant it this way. And clearly it fell a different way. I'm sorry. And then it just right. just leave it from there and you can move on because it doesn't have to become this too sensitive topic to talk about and then you don't talk about it. Right. Well, I think we've had these conversations before with a variety of issues and I really like how you um, address missteps almost like a, a normal occurrence and use it as an opportunity for growth in that communication and with that person. And uh, I think that's something that I think our kids and our our faculty uh, colleagues need to learn. So often we feel awkward and then we just don't talk to each other anymore. Uh, and um, I think we need to move through those difficult moments so that we can have more substantial um, relationships and, and, and learning. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the first times we met and you were telling me about affinity groups, uh, you shared an, an incredible experience of your, you know, one of the first times you went to the people of color conference and, uh, you found yourself maybe in affinity group that didn't perfectly fit your situation. Do you mind telling that? Oh story? yeah. Yeah. Um, so the first time that I went to the people of color conference, they have affinity groups and, uh, at the People of Color Conference, the affinity groups are broken down um, by race and, es- race and ethnicity. So there's a white affinity group, African-American affinity group, Asian-American affinity group, transracially adopted affinity group, um, and so on. So the first day of affinity group time, I went to the Asian-American affinity group and was in my group having a discussion with other Asian-American people And they started talking about their tiger moms and their tiger dads and what it was like to go home and have parents that spoke one language and they natively speak English as their first language. And all of this just really interesting stuff, but I just sat there and couldn't fully relate. Um, Even though I looked like I fit in, I actually didn't belong to that group. Um, So the second day... I was walking around and I saw on the program that there was a translationally adopted affinity group. And so I went there and it happens actually a lot. Um, 
And so I shared my story and I told them how I had actually gone to the Asian American Affinity Group first. And day two, I'm here at the right group. And it has happened before um, for many people. And they said, you know, we're happy that you shared and we're happy that you're here now. And just being in that space of 25 adult transracially adopted people was the first time in my 30 years of life that I ever got to do that. It was like the most amazing feeling I had ever had. It was earth shattering because I had never been in a space where it was all people that had similar stories, where we could say things and share things and people understood. It didn't have to require a follow-up question or what did they mean? Um, our, we could share our pain communally, which made us feel much better. We could rejoice in our joys about meeting birth parents and that kind of stuff. And truthfully, it is one thing that I look forward to every year because it's so um, uplifting to be validated in that space that, I mean, it's like after I leave, I'm like 364 more days until I get to come back here. Right. That was an incredible story. Um, well, hey, November is uh, National Adoption Awareness Month, and I've been learning a lot just talking with you and others um, and reading, and I was wondering if there were any maybe certain points that we would want to bring up during this uh, this month for our different communities. I feel like the ones who've been adopted or the ones that have an adopted sibling in their family or the families where a parent was adopted, that that is a valuable part of our diversity. There's an experience and a struggle that is unique that we can all learn from. And, you know, I feel like each one of our experiences is just such a rich, you know, irreplaceable uh, piece in whatever community that we're in. And uh, I'm just wondering how to... Um, be a more inclusive culture as we continue to struggle with, uh, you know, equity and inclusion issues, uh, how we can educate kids and, and, and teachers to be more accepting and more maybe normalizing of the, the folks around us instead of awkwardly saying the wrong thing and then not saying anything and having people feel ostracized. So um, any tips about that regarding the classroom or Yeah, I think... I think one of the important things is, well, clearly research, but developing language so that either faculty or students have the proper language to voice some of the feelings that they have. A lot of times, especially with students, they might have these feelings, but they just can't voice it or put language to how it is because they just don't know. Right. They're, they're still pretty young. Um and even for adults, especially, you know, adoptees, a lot of times it's not talked about very much. So, for example, like I said, I had never been around 25 other adoptees until I was 30. So I really hadn't started my identity journey until then. I didn't develop language. Um, when I was at the conference, I learned that there was this person named John Palmer who actually has, like, this really astounding book on the identity transformation and somewhat crisis, just the identity development of Korean adoptees. And um, I was reading through it. I was like, yeah, I had that note. I had that note. I had that note. Um, 
And it's, it's just this unique experience that adoptees go through um, that is different for each person, too. Some people can have it early on. Some people can not want it to be a part of their identity. Some people it's not relevant to them. Um, so I would just say that for most of the things I'm saying are, are just from my perspective, which is that of a happy and healthy adoptee relationship with my family. Um, there was a white family in a Christian uh, environment. Um, so I would just caution that, that certainly my tale isn't everyone's tale. Well, thank you for sharing. And uh, um, I think there's a lot to discuss and learn. And um, I, I just feel like the, the different experiences we have are different potential bridges to uh, a whole other worlds and understanding of, uh, you know, just the human experience. And, um, you know, I, I don't have a lot of Asian American friends in Kentucky here. I have some. I have <laughs> lots of friends. Kentucky has been very welcoming to me and my family. And I think it's very interesting being able to listen to your experience where, you know, your parents were white and there was, you know, there were experiences that came with that, uh, being a part of that family. And then I had the experience of my parents being immigrants and being treated a certain way. And we've had this connection where we've been able to uh, share in this work of uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And it's just been fascinating to have uh, these conversations with you over the last couple of years. Yeah, I, I've really valued it too. Um, and I think that's the way a lot of it works is a lot of us are very dedicated and know that we need to do more work in diversity and equity. And we approach it from a really academic standpoint. Um, but I think the more personal conversations and I think that proximity is really important. The more, the closer some stories are to you, whether you know a person that's adopted, whether you know a person that is LGBTQ, um, those change your experience and affect your perspective in a more positive way than reading about a person who's adopted in a book, um. But I think we would all agree on that. Well, thanks so much for speaking with us uh, today, Andrew. Absolutely. Thank you for having me.